You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lethub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Simon Winchester. Hello, is this Simon Winchester? Yes, it is. Simon, what a pleasure to speak to you. Well, thank you so much, Paul. Tell me, what what am I interrupting? What are you in the middle of, except for waiting for my call, of course? Well, what I've seriously been doing is... Um, look, it's going to sound really bizarre, but um, looking into how turbine blades in jet engines are cooled... Because, as you may know, a turbine blade operates in a stream of gas that is hotter than the melting point of the blade. So what stops them melting? And that's what I've been reading about and telephoning people about today. Um, it's a very elaborate technology. This, this book you're writing about has a, a fantastically interesting title. And I'm, I'm curious... What this title actually well, I, I means. have to say to you, Paul, I sort of change the title almost every day. Oh, really? So, um, for, yes, for... because I'm. The title of a book is so a difficult thing to get right. I think, but I mean, the title. I think I looked at it this morning. Is a brief history of precision, and then the subtitle on the relentless pursuit of accuracy, order, perfection, and exactitude. So, A Brief History of Precision, so it's not a very complicated title, I don't think, but it's, I'm trying, the reason it's a, a difficult title to get right is that although most of the book admires precision and says, you know, this is something that is important in all of our lives and it's invisible and we don't think about it very much, in fact, it has the potential to destroy us. Maybe this is a wild digression. Um, but digression is the sunshine of narrative, as, as Lawrence Stewart told us once. And I'm, I'm thinking that one of the places where I started to think about the notion of precision was many, many years ago, maybe three decades ago. I read a book that has deeply influenced me. It stays with me in a, in a very powerful way. It's a book by Wolfgang Schivelbusch. You've Co told me of this. Yes. I have called the railway journey, the industrialization of time and space in the 19th century. And he talks about the fact, which I'm sure you know all too well, that trains were one of the reasons one had to come up with one time zone. Mm -hmm. Yes, the I mean, the clock in Penn Station, I think, in the old days had, I think, 15 dials, because the trains of the Pennsylvania Railway ran on Altoona time, and um, there was New York time, and indeed, oddly enough, I've just done a book uh, uh, illustrating a, uh, photographs of um, um, English photographer called Martin Parr, and I talk about arriving in Oxford by train and hearing the bell of Christchurch Every night it rings 101 times, uh, the curfew bell. And, um, but it doesn't ring at 9 o'clock, it rings at 4 minutes past 9. And I said 
to the chap on the station. This was way back in 1962 when I first went to Oxford. And he said, oh, no, Christchurch perversely rings its main bell at four minutes past nine because it is 15 uh, minutes, uh, that's minutes of arc, west of London. And consequently, the time in Oxford is four minutes later than the time in in Greenwich. And they're not going to be slavishly um, obeisant to Greenwich Mean Time. We're on Oxford time here. The railways aren't, but we, the Oxford academic world is. How, how truly extraordinary, and I know that... If I in, can interrupt with a quote, which yes. I'm not nearly as good as you at, at quoting. Oh, I, I wouldn't agree, but go ahead. No, I'm not. Dorothy L. Sayers, Gordy Knight, famous detective story set in Oxford, talks, it says, one of the moments that I love about walking back through Oxford in the middle of the night, in fact, midnight, and hearing the Oxford clock striking midnight in, and the quote is, in friendly disagreement and and that friendly disagreement is what what Chivalbush talks about in this great book where the friendly disagreement really ended up in really unfriendly accidents um so that if well, before the greenwich mean time trains were running on their own schedules and so that created havoc now i i do want to ask you a little bit more about about the Martin Parr introduction, because I, I love his photographs. They, they are, they are quite mean sometimes as when, when they, when they, um, photograph tourists in particular, as I recall. And I'm, I'm wondering what angle you're taking and what book you're prefacing. Well, this is a book, um, called Oxford, being published by Oxford University Press in association with the Bodleian Library. Basically, Bodley's librarian is currently a man called Richard Ovenden. One of his many interests is photography, and he likes Martin. I mean, Martin, as you have indicated, is a somewhat controversial photographer, but Richard likes him and rang him three or four years ago and said, would you like to spend a year, courtesy of the Bodleian, in Oxford, taking photographs of the university, not of the town, but of the university? And um, he, Martin, very generously said, yes, and I would love it if a, a book eventuated. And if it did, I'd like my mate Simon to write the 25,000 words to go with it as an afterword or an essay or a foreword or something like that. He, I didn't wait until he had taken all of his pictures because I didn't want to, as it were, write to picture. I didn't want my book to be a series of, as it were, captions. So um, I wrote my own essay, um, and what I did, and um, we'll see what the critics have to say, was basically to walk people through my three years there from 63 to 66, reading geology. And um, it presents, uh, I mean, of a certain time anyway, a reasonably good cross-section of everything that Oxford stands for. I and mean, I joined all the appropriate societies, you know, the debating society and the exploration society and the, I think I joined the communist society. And so there was a lot of either politics or rumbustious fun I rode for my college. So presenting all of that, um, as far as, as best I can remember anyway, presents a fairly good portrait, I think, of Oxford, which I, now I've seen Martin's pictures, it seems to 
rather well. So we'll see what the, what people say when it comes out in September. But um, I think both Martin and I are quite happy with it. You know, it's 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 so difficult to speak um, because you can only say one thing at a time, and it's <laughs> it, it's so different than thinking because your your um, your description here made me think of so many things. First of all, it made me think that the very act of walking and how important that may have been for you. It also made me think of. Oxford and a relationship to Oxford made me immediately think of a relationship you and I have to someone we love dearly. Possibly the one thing, and I don't want to take up too much of your time, but James Morris, as he was when I first encountered him, changed my life utterly. I mean, I was a geologist. I graduated from Oxford in 1966, and I went off to work in Uganda. And um, I was keen on mountain climbing, not a very good one, but I was keen. And there was a British Council library, maybe 30 or so miles from the tented encampment I lived in in western Uganda on the Congo border. And um, I would go to this British Council library and get any books I could. And one of them, published by Faber, I think, in the 1950s, was called Coronation Everest by James Morris, of whom I'd never heard. And it was his account of being the Times of London correspondent on the expedition that got to the summit of Mount Everest in May 1953. And crucially, he, James, cleverly, using an elaborate system of codes, managed to get the news of the success of Edmund Hillary and uh, Tenzing reaching the summit back to London, back to the Times, such that it could be published on the morning of the 2nd of June, 1953, which was the coronation of Queen Elizabeth, the queen that's on the throne at the moment. And I thought, my God, not only is this a wonderful story about mountaineering and a great adventure story, it's also about the daring do and Machiavellian cunning that is central to the life of a working journalist, which James Morris clearly was. So I thought, you know, I'm pretty hopeless at geology and... Um, I think I'd like to try and be what James is. So I wrote a letter to this chap, uh, care of his publishers, Faber and Faber, and said, I'm, dear Mr. Morris, I'm a 21-year-old geologist living in East Africa, and I've just read and been enthralled by your book. Can I be you? And he, I thought as I posted it, he'll never reply, but he did. About three weeks later, back came this letter saying, quite honestly, if you think you can write, it is the most wonderful way of earning a living. You'll never make yourself particularly rich, but you'll have an extraordinary life. So to cut a very long story short, I left Uganda almost immediately thereafter on his say-so, came back to England, got a job on a local newspaper, wrote to him again, and he was amazed that I had taken his advice but gave me more advice, of which the most important was never lose your sense of wonder because you will see amazing things and meet remarkable people. Don't become world-weary and cynical. And tried to do as he said with that and other pieces of advice and became a working journalist and joined The Guardian and went to Northern Ireland and Washington and all over the world, but never met James until 1974 August, when finally I found myself in North Wales, where he lives, and um, rang him up. And he said, my God, you know, I read you every day. I'm so proud of you. It's astonishing. I created you. Come and have tea. And I went and had tea with him. He'd become 
he was there with his wife Elizabeth and um, well Jan and I as with you I mean we're we love Jan and I go and see her every time I'm in Britain and she's now 91 and Elizabeth is a little bit older they live together they lived together as sisters-in-law before it became legal for two women to be married but now they are wife and wife and uh, happily sliding into old age I retain this deep deep sense of gratitude to a fellow that completely changed my life and then changed his and you know um i mean the the way he changed his life by becoming a woman is perhaps one of the most extraordinary stories um i've ever read conundrum mm. um though i must say uh, jan morris is so much more than that one book which he's often remembered for it is an extraordinary story when she talks about being two or three years old and being under the piano and discovering that she, she, as a he, wasn't in the right body, she already felt. But um, quite apart from that, I have to tell you one story. I did phone up Jan uh, on this series, a phone call from Paul, and she uh, played all kinds of music for me on the call, and she was altogether delighted. And then she told me, when she listened to it, she said, Elizabeth and I sat down to listen to your radio program, and we had a cup of tea, and we kept thinking, my goodness, the BBC would never have done something like that. And she painted a whole picture of being in her living room, listening to the radio, which of course this is not in some way, was it was so wonderful because she immediately, immediately transported me into that place. And I don't know, have you been to that place? I have never been oh. to that place and and she's invited me, she said, Come to come to Wales Come and be, uh, come to the, the, we have a little opera series in the summer. You must go. And unlike you, I just didn't uh, knock on that door. I feel, I feel so often, so many occasions, which would have been wonderful. I haven't taken them. But anyway, I interrupted you. <laughs> no, I just think it's, a, I mean, she lives essentially in a library and it is the most wonderful library. It's a, she downsized to use the modish word many years ago so often when one goes up the lane in this little village with the unpronounceable name Slanistumdwi where Lloyd George was born um, you think the Grand Georgian House which is where she and I first met in 1974 is where she lives today but she doesn't you've got to go on the outside of the walled garden to a much more modest establishment Oh, what what a wonderful story yet again and and um Simon, we have something I think in common, um which is that in my earlier years my my father believed that it was immoral, which is quite his word, for me to travel any other way than hitchhiking. I somewhere read that you spent a fair amount of time hitchhiking, and I'm wondering if you can remember the where and the what of it. Well, I remember vividly because um, I I went to school in Dorset and um, why I did this, I'm not quite sure. I, I, I wasn't very, I wasn't unpopular at school, but I wasn't popular and I, I was pretty undistinguished at things like sports and I thought I would like to do something which is notable 
why don't I start a hitchhiking competition? You'd go in couples and um, you'd have to hitchhike to Gretna Green, far side, the Scottish side of the border between England and Scotland, just north of Carlisle. And you'd have the postmistress there stamp a postcard to show you had been there and then hitchhike back to school. It was about a total of 700 miles back and forth and um, weren't allowed to spend more than two shillings and sixpence. So um, we set off and I always used to wear... <laughs> I used to be... You'll find this extraordinary because you've met me many times. I used to be quite nice looking. I had a full head of hair and I had a sort of... I sang in the school choir and I looked rather angelic. And I dressed rather naturally, and I used to terribly pretentious for a 14-year-old schoolboy, but I had always wore a bow tie when I went hitchhiking. And I got rides so quickly. So I was on my way out of Dorchester within about two minutes of having stuck my thumb out. And then it was Dorchester up to sort of Coventry, and then you get on the A1, and then it starts getting cold, because we did this in November. And the junction with the A66, which goes over the Pennines, standing in usually in the dead of night in a near-Arctic gale, waiting for a lorry to stop and pick you up. And then finally, once you got on the A66, you'd cross the Pennines and you'd get on the A5, and that would head north up through Carlisle, and you'd make it to Gretna Green, you'd wake up the postmistress, you'd get her to stamp the letter, and then you'd get back south. And... Uh, I don't know if I ever won it. I think other boys might have done better than my. But my father was so excited by this that he awarded a silver cup, which was engraved each year. So still at this school in Dorset, the Winchester Cup for Hitchhiking is awarded to boys who managed to do this. But you see, um, to me, what, what is so interesting about hitchhiking in the context of our conversation is how it brings us back to... Um, your, 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 your recent dinner where you discovered all kinds of things about the topic that interests you at present, blades, which is that, is that you, 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 you're picked up by someone, as it were, and what you need to have in turn, um, are stories. You need to know how to make up stories. That is how you pay back, as it were, for the free ride. It isn't quite a free ride because you have to be entertaining and you have to be able to understand who is picking you up and what might interest them. One, I, I then came and hitchhiked all over America. I mean, I, I just I took a year off before I went up to university and hitchhiked everywhere. I mean, I did 38,000 miles, I think. And it only cost $18 because people just were so hospitable. I just fell in love with America as a consequence. But there were occasional dark moments. And of one course. of them was in Wheeling, West Virginia. And I was hitchhiking west towards Denver, I think I was heading for. And I might say that I was sexually completely naive back. I was 17 or something. I'd never, never done the evil deed. I knew nothing about anything, really. And um, so it's dark, I'm in Wheeling, and I can't get a ride, I can't get a ride, and then suddenly I see a car, and it comes alongside me, and the one fellow in it, and he lowers his window, and he said, hi, and I said, hello, and he said, and I hope this is right for me to say on your radio program, Paul, uh, do you want a blowjob? And I had not the foggiest idea what that was. 
So I said, well, it's awfully nice of you, but I've actually got one at home. <laughs> and he was really angry. And he drove the car over the sidewalk so I couldn't uh, make any further progress. And I was terrified. And I was going climbing, and I had my ice axe on the back of my rucksack with a sort of quick-release strap. And I whipped round, and I brought it full force down on his windshield, which shattered. And I ran like the devil away from this man and finally found a lit street. And there was a donut store or something open. And I went in, and I said, oh, I'm a 17-year-old schoolboy, and some man is chasing me. He's very angry. And they calmed me down, and they had a whip round, and they gave me enough money to get to the a taxi to take me to the Greyhound station. And I got the 4 a.m. bus to Columbus, Ohio, and resumed my hitchhiking. So that was one not very good story. But then three days ago here, I live in um, western Massachusetts, very close to the Appalachian Trail, and I had been... I, I sort of started the local newspaper in this little town, and I have to write a, a column for it called Moreover. And the one that I did for the issue, which comes out in about a week, um, was about the Appalachian Trail and the fact that you're beginning to see in our neck of the woods what they call the through-walkers, the people that began the trail in Georgia in March. We're about halfway, and they'll make Mount Katahdin in Maine in October. So... I said in my column, you're beginning to see the through walkers here. You occasionally see them in ones or twos walking down towards Great Barrington where they can get a bagel or a shower or something. And I always give them a lift. So I was in our local liquor store two days ago and there was a through walker. He was there buying a bottle of soda pop or something and he had his rucksack. And I said, are you going back to the Appalachian Trail? He said, yes. I said, are you wanting a lift? He said, I'd love a ride. My God, you're offering. I said, absolutely. Hop in. And he gave me his story, which was sweet and brief. I mean, I think the lift was only about five minutes. But he was a truck driver. And he was getting tired of driving trucks, which he'd been doing for 20 years. And he was deciding, he thought, I'd go for it. I'd spend this summer walking and see if something came to me that would prompt me to change my life. And about 300 miles ago, he said, so about two weeks ago, I decided I would go back to, I would leave truck driving forever. I would go back to the University of Maryland. He came from Baltimore and I would become a marine biologist. And he's applied, he's got in and that's what he's going to do in October. It's fantastic, no? And now, now you're the, you, you are carrying around his story, which would never have happened if you had said what most people would feel that it's, it's dangerous to pick people up or, you know, we have to be careful. And I think, um, in part what, what these stories tell us is that we, we learn to be resourceful by exposing ourselves, not in a foolish way. I mean, one, one, one never quite knows what will happen. And I think, um, you know, when, when, one doesn't quite know. One doesn't quite know if, if things will turn out badly. But, you know, I hitchhiked throughout America um, because I was born in this country. I was born in Houston, Texas, which everybody immediately can tell. I spent very four very important days there, the memory of which is slight. And when I turned 18, I hitchhiked around 29 states, not with $18, but with $400, which for two and a half months was a, a fair amount of money, not an enormous amount of money. And the reason for not having a lot of money was so 
that you would have to rely on what one used to call one's wits yeah. to to find a way out of sticky situations, of which there were very few, but a few that are not dissimilar from the one you described, where you just learn either to run fast or <laughs> to talk talk the person out of it. Right. But it's funny, I, thinking when you were talking about Houston, I reminded immediately of the movie Paris, Texas, and of those scenes shot in a Houston peep show parlor where he's looking at Nastasia Kinski, I think it was, and that led me to think of Klaus Kinski, which led me to think of Werner Herzog, and how he walks everywhere, and how peculiar it is in America today when you see someone walking along a highway, and how you instinctively think, what's this man's problem? And you think the joy that he experiences in walking as does Will Self, the English novelist, where every time he arrives at Kennedy, he walks to Manhattan. Well, well, you know, Werner Herzog says that one must travel by foot. Yes. And and there is there is an ethical, moral dimension to to travelling by foot, and it's a certain way also of of seeing the world. And when you when you travel by foot, and Herzog talks about that you arrive somewhere and people want to know the stories yeah, of exactly. where you have come from. <clears throat> so there's, there's a deep, um, there's a deep sense of why this matters. In, in closing, Simon, um, I know how, how important some poetry is to you. Right. And, um, there are a couple of poems that, that, I could imagine you either reciting or reading. Um, and there is one about trains, as it were, um, called Adelstrop by Edward Thomas. And then another poem which we will leave, leave our readers with, our listeners with. Can I um, recite it? You, you, you must recite it. Well, okay. I mean, it's a very simple poem, and it's made all the more poignant because Edward Thomas, who wrote it, uh, was killed shortly after in, in, in the First World War, shortly after writing it. He never saw it published. But it's, to me, I love railway trains. I love this particular station. Adelstrop is outside Oxford on the Oxford to Worcester main line. And it was closed down in 1966, which was effectively the year... I left England, and it is such, such a very, very simple poem. Yes, I remember Adelstrop, the name, because one afternoon of heat, the express train drew up there, unwontedly. It was late June. The steam hissed. Someone cleared his throat. No one left and no one came on the bare platform. What I saw was Adelstrop only the name, and willows, willow herb and grass, and meadow sweet and haycocks dry, no whit less still and lonely fair than the high cloudlets in the sky. And for that minute a blackbird sang close by, and round him, mistier, farther and farther, all the birds of Oxfordshire and Gloucestershire. It's so moving. To me, um, incredibly moving. So it just brings back... The England that I miss and which, when I go there, isn't, doesn't exist anymore. Like the station doesn't exist. You know, um, Kundera once said that a European is someone who longs for Europe. 
Well, I long for England, so I'm an Englishman, I don't say. Yeah, I mean, I could, this, this conversation could go in many directions now with England being where it is, but I won't, I won't take it there. I won't take it there. And, um, you know, this poem was unknown to me before I asked you if there was a poem that mattered to you and you told me this one. And I must say, um, in reading it last night, I, I found it so, so deeply moving and his story, of course, incredibly moving. And I remembered, you know, Paul Fussell's book about, about the First World War. It brought, it brought back all kinds of memories. Yeah. But there was one other poem that that you chose and said you would love to to read or recite. You may know it by heart. I was going to ask you, do you know many poems by heart? A few. I mean, the, the obvious ones, you know, I met a traveler from an antique land who said to vast and trunkless, you know, the Ozymandias, I know that and things. But this one, I love Philip Larkin. Uh, he was edited by the first editor I ever had at Faber was called Charles Monteith, and he edited three my first three books, which became totally obscure, but he edited Philip Larkin, and he said um, that he had more letters about Larkin when he died than of any author that he ever edited. He hadn't, a, Charles had no idea just how Larkin spoke to people, to use a modish phrase, how many ordinary people were touched by him, and, and I was one of those ordinary people. So the poem, it's a terribly cynical poem, it's called This Be the Verse. Um, I mean, Larkin was a cynic, but there was so much truth to what he said, and This Be the Verse goes like this, if I can recall it. They fuck you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They give you all the faults they had but add some extra, just for you. But they were fucked up in their turn by old-school fools in hats and coats, who half the time were soppy stern and half at one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can, and don't have any kids yourself. Oh, this poem I did know. And I think it, it will speak to, to, to many generations in many different ways as they continue to procreate. <laughs> right. Simon, it's, it's been, as I imagined it would be, a, a truly great, great pleasure to speak to you. And I look forward to when next we meet. We've been hitchhiking together today and it was fun. It really was. Thank you so much and take good care. Thank you. Bye bye, Paul. Bye bye. bye. bye.